Before we get into today's show, I just wanted to let you know about our new podcast that I'm so excited about called Mindbenders. It's a podcast about stories of synchronicity that can bend minds. You can find Mindbenders podcast at Spotify, Apple podcast, and mindbenderspodcast.com. Submit your mind-bending story today by emailing us at mindbenders at path11productions.com or by calling us. Leave your story on our voicemail. It's okay if it's a long one. We'll call you back. 1-323-713-1113. Again, that's 1-323-713-1113. Also, the 2020 Virtual Afterlife Awareness Conference has ended, but the replays are still available at path11productions.com slash ac2020. For $129, you can watch just over 17 hours of streamed videos from professionals including Robert Moss, Austin Wells, Edie Nathan, Brian Smith, and Daniel 4 PhD, just to name a few of the presenters. Visit path11productions.com slash AC2020 to see the complete list. Topics include dealing with grief, working with death doulas, psychic children, and suicide. These videos won't last forever, but they can be watched anytime at your convenience until September 30th, 2020. Visit path11productions.com slash AC2020 for all the information. And if you haven't seen our documentaries yet, the Path Series Trilogy, you can watch all three for free at Gaia.com. Just sign up for their one-week free trial. You can cancel at any time and watch The Path Afterlife, The Path Beyond the Physical, and The Path Evolution. Oh, and before we get into our show, I wanted to remind you to use your 25% off discount code PATH2PORTAL, all caps, PATH, the number two portal, path to portal at reconnection.com for trainings by Dr. Eric Pearl. They absolutely loved being on our show and they wanted to give back to our listeners. So you guys are lucky and are getting 25% off if you go to their website, reconnection.com. All of these links are listed in the show notes for today's episode. So enough of all these announcements, let's get to our show for today. And thanks for tuning in to the Path 11 Podcast. I am your host, April Hanna. At the Path 11 Podcast, we are here trying to deliver leading-edge research on consciousness, healing, and metaphysics. And just like you, we are trying to answer the big questions about life. Who are we? Why are we here? And what is our purpose? We hope by listening to our podcast, it will make each day you live on Earth a little easier to understand. And now for today's podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Path 11 podcast today. We have a great show for you today. I would like to introduce John Perkins. Many of you might have heard of him before. We are going to be talking about touching the jaguar, transforming fear into action to change your life and the world. So if you haven't heard of John Perkins before, let me tell you a little bit about him. He is an activist and author of 10 books on global intrigue, shamanism, and transformation, including the classic confessions of an economic hitman, which has been New York Times bestseller for more than 70 weeks, sold over 2 million copies, and published in 35 languages. He was formerly chief economist at a major consulting firm where he advised financial institutions, corporations, and governments around the world. He is a founder of the Pachimama Alliance and Dream Change, nonprofits that partner with indigenous people to protect environments and build sustainable economies. So a shaman had once told John about what it meant to touch the jaguar. So we're going to be talking quite a bit about this uh, throughout our conversation today. And the Amazonian shaman told John, touching the jaguar means that you can identify your fears and barriers, confront them, 
alter your perceptions about them, accept their energy, and take actions to change yourself and the world. And really, touching the jaguar, that's what it's all about. Uh, John Perkins, welcome to the Path 11 podcast today. Thank you, April. Thank you so much. I just want you to know I brought my own jaguar along here with me. Uh, she's she's a little wild. It's my little kitten. She's very, very sweet, but she's also very like a jaguar. <laughs> yes. So she's going to co-host with me. How about that? And uh, and let the audience know her name again. Jagita. Or Jagita. Spanish for, <laughs> for a little jaguar. Or we just call it Jaggy. Jaggy, <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. And I also love the shirt that you're wearing. Like I said, um, I should have worn my, uh, I have this lion shirt that is very colorful like that. And we could have been twinning a little bit with our power animals here. Um, so, John, first of all, I have to start off with a confession. I had never heard of you before, and I probably shouldn't have said that, but I have to be authentic. And I almost passed, if you can believe it, on this interview. And the other producer, Mike, had said, hey, that's so cool that we got John Perkins. And I said, oh, really? You want me to say yes to this interview? Because I was like an economic hitman. Like, what does that have to do with kind of what we're talking about? And then the light went on when I started to go in deeper into your work and understanding about your mission and how some of the stuff that you have been doing, you know, early on in your career and you talk in the book that you're kind of making it your mission to turn around some of the damage that has been done when you were this economic hit man. And, you know, I came to learn that you're connected to shamanism and the spiritual world, which is a lot of what the path 11 podcast is all about. So once I actually sat down and understood and I was like, okay, yeah, this is perfect material for the Path 11 podcast. So I was not one of the 2 million people that bought your first book, but I have become a huge fan of you now. So I'm so glad that, you know, I'm being introduced to you. And it it kind of made me think a little bit too. Um, You know, I'm 43 and I don't know how I haven't heard of you before, but I haven't. So it made me think, well, I also don't want to assume that people in our audience who follow the Path 11 podcast are familiar with your work. I'm sure many are, but, um, you know, there might be some people naive like me who just for some reason or another, our paths haven't crossed, but they're crossing now. And I do believe that there's a reason, you know, when the student is ready, the teacher will come type of thing. Um, So I do want to give a little bit more. I want you to go into a little bit more about your background for people who might be learning about you for the very first time, like I was about a month ago. So can we kind of begin there like a traditional interview, but I don't want to pass over some of that before we get into this book. Sure, April. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, a lot of people have never heard of me <laughs> and, and, and a surprising number I have, which is interesting. And it's often the case people don't know my name, but if I, if they mention if the book, The Confessions of an Economic Hitman is mentioned, then they they do. And and I'm I, well, she's, she's just determined to be part of the <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> um, in any case, you know, back in the in the nineties, nineteen nineties, I wrote five books on shamanism: shape shifting, the world is as you dream it. You were pretty young in those days, so you might not have heard of them. I was. Uh, I'm still in high school. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And uh, then I then later I wrote Confessions of Economic Hitman and three other books on <clears throat> global economics and intrigue. It's been so interesting to me that I speak at a lot of big venues in all over the world. And when I'm speaking at, at economic conferences, 
people will come up to me and say, hey, you know that same guy that wrote those woo-woo books on him, <laughs> are you? And then I'll speak at a, at, a, at a New Age event, a shamanic event or whatever, and, and people say, you know that, you know that guy that wrote those awful, that brought about those, that awful life as an economic hitman, are you? And, and for me, there was always a very, very strong connection between the two mm-hmm. uh, because both worlds are based on the idea that our perceptions mold our reality which is a major theme in in the new book, uh, Touching the Jaguar. And Touching the Jaguar is is a, oops, <laughs> Touching the Jaguar is, a, is an overt attempt to build a bridge between these two genres that to me have always been connected. And, and the connection is this idea that whenever, so, so the shaman told me back, back in 1968 when I was, my life was saved by a shaman in the Amazon, he taught me that Touching the jaguar means that we we identify the things that hold us back, our fears, the voices in us that say, "Hey, you're not quite, you're not good enough. You can't do that, or you're not, you you, you don't speak the light, right language, or you haven't gone to enough school, or whatever it is." Some voice that tells us we just can't do it. Some blockage, or maybe it's, it's us saying you know something about our physical ability, something. And the shaman said, I, "When you identify those things that stop you." that they're like jaguars. And if you run from them, if you deny them, if you if you continue to listen to them and let them stop you, they'll keep stopping you. You won't go where you want to go in life. But if you reach out and touch them, uh, then they give you the, the energy or the creativity, the courage, the patience, whatever it is that you need in order to move forward and do what you need to do. So touching the jaguar is really about identifying our blockages, touching them, and... <laughs> Yeah, that's this jaguar. She's teething, so she's going after me. No, don't wait. Uh, and so it's about touching, it's about identifying the things that hold us back, confronting them, and then moving forward. And, uh, and, and that's true. So shamans teach us that. But it's also true that um, what, what it's really about is that our perceptions mold our reality. So when we touch the jaguar, we change our perceptions. And then we can move forward and take the actions that we need in order to do what we really know we must do. Um, so in both case, in, in all these cases, it's about perceptions molding reality. If you look at the business world, when you think about it, there's no corporations, there's no religion, there's no culture, there are no countries, there's no human institutions until we first perceive them. And when enough people accept a perception or codify it into law, it, it has a huge impact on reality. And that's the, that's the basis for modern psychotherapy, the basis for shamanism, it's the basis for quantum physics, and it's the basis for, for marketing, for corporations, for, for public relations, for politics, for everything. And so, you know, this idea of touching the Jaguar, and, and incidentally, the, I like the, the, the subtitle to the book, is transforming fear into action to change your life in the world. And so, you know, we're at a time right now where we understand that we must change the way we're living. You know, the oceans are rising, the glaciers are melting. All of our current problems, whether it's coronavirus, the climate change problems, or racial integration problems, police brutality problems, uh, COVID-19 problems, all of these problems are problems, but they're not the problem. The problem is that we've created a system that's just not working. 
what, what economists call a death economy, one that's consuming itself into extinction. And it's just based on a perception that we must maximize short-term materialistic consumption, short-term profits for corporations, short-term consumption for individuals, regardless of the social and environmental costs. We have to change that perception, and then we change the world that we're living in. And we're getting all kinds of messages that we need to do that. As you well know, as your program is so much about that whole whole subject. Right. Yeah, and, and so how do you do that collectively, right? Does there have to be a collective consciousness then that is all perceiving this other reality in order for that reality to begin to transform? Or is it just the people that are changing their perceptions to see it, then they're kind of living in that reality and maybe not as the collective? Well, there's a collective reality that, that needs to change, and that is to change the idea that we need to maximize short-term materialistic consumption. Change that to a perception that success means that we, ben- we, 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 that the, we, have, we benefit long-term. And so it's a it's it's the change from from short term maximization of profits to long term maximization of benefits for humans, for people, and for nature, for all. And when you think about it, and this is part of where the tie comes in here, that the indigenous people that I wrote about in those first five books, and I still every year I take groups of people to visit shamans in several different countries in Latin America. You can go to johnperkins.org and find out more, but. So I still am very connected with that shamanic world, very connected. And I'm also very connected with the business world. And and so we, 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 we see that, you know, it's just about changing that perception and that indigenous cultures have always had a long-term view. When we talk about the seventh generation, the cultures I know don't, don't necessarily look out seven generations, but they do look out for their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren. Uh, and... When you think about it, April, all of us come from those cultures. For the 250,000 or so years that we've been humans, as we know ourselves to be humans on this planet, most all of that time, we've lived in culture in cultures that, that look to the long term, that have a, have a goal of leaving for their children uh, as good a world as they inherited or a better one. And it's only been within the last blink of an eye, historically speaking, that we've moved into this very selfish, very short-term view of success. And it, it did bring us some amazing things, this short-term view, you know, amazing science, technology, medicine, art, the fact that we can have this conversation, uh, uh, you know, across continents <laughs> is, is incredible. Uh, but it, it's reached a limit. And we know that, that we're getting messages all over that, that we've reached the limit, and and the and, and COVID nineteen has really very much kicked us in the butt with this. It's it's global. We're seeing, you know, everybody's seen these images of of China be, before the virus and all the pollution, and after the virus when there's a lot less pollution. So this 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 virus is giving us a, a global message that we know we can change, and we must change. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when you were talking about when you're at the conference, uh, you know, with like shamans and then, you know, you're at the economic conferences stuff and they're like, oh, you're writing about that woo woo stuff. Um, You know, I kind of feel, too, that a a lot of like the Eastern traditions and indigenous cultures, 
I feel like that there's like pockets, many more pockets of this in the Western world, right? Mm -hmm. That you're hearing of more people getting trainings and we're holding more of these ceremonies and people are yearning for that, I feel like in, in the West. And also with COVID, I kind of am also seeing how it's stopping people to take a look at all different types of modalities. And I kind of am feeling like this energy coming, um, you know, more where it's being more integrated in the Western culture, as opposed to we were so focused on like, you know, I kind of feel like third chakra, ego, power, money, I, 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 and, you know, disregarding the earth and disregarding our natural resources. And now, whatever is kind of happening with this energetic shift, I'm almost feeling like as the world, the world itself, everyone, this collective is experiencing this, that more of this healing nature and and being more one with the earth and that these ceremonies is no longer becoming woo-woo, but now you have people like looking to some of this, like, okay, uh, maybe I should be taking zinc and vitamin C and, you know, looking at the way that plants can heal and help our immune system and people are starting to get healthier and looking at different ways to take care of themselves. And we're seeing these effects of, you know, pollution and, and the earth like thriving with us stopping. So, you know, what are some of your thoughts about that, about these, I, I look at them a little bit of like two separate worlds, but they're starting really to merge together where this isn't going to be so odd to talk about. Yes. There's a, well, there's, a, there's many prophecies and you may know the prophecy of the condor and the eagle, where it's, it's about these two aspects of culture coming together. It's really about the, the mind and the heart coming together and the, and so on. So there's, so, so there's so many prophecies of this. And, you know, it's interesting to me. I, let's see, I started taking people to study with, to live with, to spend a little time with the shamans deep in the Amazon and high in the Andes Mountains in the late 1980s. And I have to say that throughout much of the 90s, the people that were interested in going on these adventures and learning from the shamans who wanted to teach us uh, were, you know, people that were very interested in, in the books on shamanism, you know, the new age type of people, uh, what, what my corporate friends might refer to as woo-woo. And now, but those people, you know, they've, they've changed a lot in many respects. They still come, but also I get a lot of high-up corporate executives, and medical doctors, scientists, all kinds of people now are interested in going into the Amazon. And it, every year I take people to the Kogi of, of Colombia, to the Achua and Zapata and Shua of the Amazon, and to the Mayan people of Central America. I have three or four different trips that I take people on. And, you know, the, the, the spectrum is very broad of, of, of the people that want to go on these trips. Now, and that's changed a lot over the years. Yeah. And, you know, and again, and you're, and for what you're saying, I, I'm very struck by uh, one of the shamans I take people to is a wonderful woman shaman high in the Andes Mountains of Ecuador. She has the great name of Maria Juana. <laughs> Maria Juana. <laughs> Maria Juana Yambarela. And uh, several years ago when I was there with a group and I was translating and somebody asked, so Maria Juana, what do we do to save the earth? And she just laughed, you know, and she said, ah, Mother Earth, Pachamama is not in danger. We are. We people and, and, and a lot of other species we'll take with us. But, you know, we're just like so many fleas. And if we get to be too much of a nuisance, Pachamama will just blah, 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 shake us off. And then Maria Juana pointed up at this massive volcano that hovers over her home in the Andes, in Babura. And she said, 
A few years ago, that volcano was covered with a massive ice cap. It isn't anymore. Pachamama's twitching. She hasn't shaken us off yet, but she's letting us know that we better change. And she looked at us, she smiled, she said, all of you should be so happy that you're alive right now because you're living at a time that's been prophesized. You're living at a time where we really can listen to the earth. We know we can listen to the earth. And she's speaking. And April, I have to say that since then, every time there's been a major hurricane or the, or the fires in California or Australia or earthquakes or whatever, these once in 100 year events that happen every year or so now, every time there's one of those, I thought about what Maria Juana said. But the problem was that we looked at those as local. Most people looked at those as local events. But we didn't even talk about all oh, this is part of climate change. But in general, people thought, well, if I survive the hurricane or whatever, uh, the outside world will come to my rescue soon. I'll get water, bottled water and, and food, and then we can rebuild the, the old way. And we, we looked at it that way, pretty much. The coronavirus now is no longer that. It's global. It's It said, look, you guys, you weren't listening, and so you better listen. So here's a real kick in the butt. This is impacting everybody on the planet, even people deep in the Amazon. And it's, you know, it's forcing us to really look at what we haven't looked at. There is no outside world that's going to come to our rescue. We're getting the message that we live on a very fragile space station, the Earth, and we humans are the pilots, and we've been navigating the space station toward disaster. It's time to reboot the navigation system. It's time for us to alter the course and move away from this death economy, this, this overall global economic, governmental, uh, social system that we've created that really is destroying itself and, and move to a life economy. And we, we can talk more about that if you want, but that's a yeah. That's the kind of economic system that we are moving toward, and, and it's begun. And it, it, it began before the virus. You know, B corporations, benefit corporations, the Green New Deal, conscious capitalism. There were so many signs that it was all. We we're already on the path toward change. And my hope is that this virus truly will kick us into a jumpstart that we totally globally will understand. We can't. We don't want to return to normal. And if we do, we'll just get to the old normal. And if we do, we'll just get kicked in the butt, butt again. We need to create a new normal, which is the life economy and, and a, a wonderful world. This is not about suffering. This is not sacrificing. This is about moving forward into something truly elegant and, and much more spiritual, in fact. Yeah, I would love to talk more about that because I haven't talked to anybody about that. You're the first person that I'm talking to about this life economy. So explain that a little bit more. How do you see this, you know, after COVID-19 changing, do you see stuff changing in the health system? Uh, what do you think about the economy and what, what does that mean, life economy? Yeah, so, you know, I, I'm an economist by training, although I don't really claim to be one anymore. But I was chief economist, which is at one point, uh, being an economic hitman, um, I felt guilty about it, but I came to realize that it also has given me a lot of credibility in the business world because I, I have that background and can speak to these things. And and more and more, what I'm talking about is how this, this death economy that we've created is very short term. And it, it means because it's based on the idea that uh, businesses must maximize short-term profits regardless of the social and environmental costs. It, it gives CEOs the right, in fact, a mandate to do whatever it takes um, 
to maximize short-term profits. And that means destroying the resources in the short-term upon which their long-term depends. It means destroying the environment. It means uh, exploiting people as much as possible, paying them as little as possible, exploiting resources. It means corrupting politicians. It means changing the law so that, in fact, corrupting politicians is no longer legally a form of corruption. It's now legally acceptable. All of these things. And it's not working. And most all of the executives that I know understand it's not working, but they don't know how to change it because they're afraid that if they if they if a CEO uh, goes deeper into making these changes, uh, he may lose uh, half a percentage of, of market share. And if that happens, the main stockholders will fire him and replace him with someone who only cares about um, about uh, market share. And so, you know, the, these executives will tell me, hey, get out there and tell all the audience you speak to, to send us letters, send us emails, send us tweets, whatever it is they want to do. When I get 100,000 of these things that say, I love your product, Nike, let's just say. I love your product. I love your tennis shoes. But I'm not going to buy them anymore until you pay your workers in Indonesia a fair salary. And when these executives get enough of these letters, they can uh, take them to their to their boards and they can take them to their main stockholders and say, hey, we got to listen to our customers. And so there is this whole thing that we, we just need to let these people know that we've got to move into a new perception of what it means to be successful. And the life economy is that success. And the life economy is an economic system that cleans up pollution, pays people to clean up pollution, pays investors to invest in things like processes or equipment that mine all the plastic in the oceans, that clean up all the oil that's spilled around gas stations and oil drilling sites all over the world, that pays people and investors to, to do things that regenerate destroyed environments, you know, clean up rivers around the world and harbors and oceans and, and old mine pits and so on and so forth. There's, there's so much that can be done and pays people to, to, to come up with new ways of recycling and new technologies that will make uh, today's solar and wind, which I'm totally in favor of, but it will make our technologies today look archaic five years from now, where we can move into using the air itself to create energy. There's just so much that can be done. And, you know, this COVID-19 has shown us that we are capable of making changes. We're I'm not doing a book tour that I should be doing right now at the bookstores. I was supposed to be at one in Miami, one in Chicago, one in New York last week. Instead, we did them virtually. And that meant we were also able to reach people who visited those bookstores over the years and signed in and now live in Sweden or Switzerland or Italy or Spain. Those people were able to... <laughs> <laughs> to come to the to the bookstore top, and nobody had to fly in airplanes, including me. So we're, we're learning that that we can change, and that change can actually be fun and beneficial. And I'm not trying to downplay the suffering that people are going through or the stress of, of self isolation. That all of that's there, but it's also teaching us that we can move through those kinds of things, and we can move into a life economy. And you know, it's it, it's a beautiful thing. I mean, I think. If you think about it, what if we were to pay? So, so if you're an American citizen, about fifty-four dollars of every hundred you pay in taxes to the U.S. government and the discretionary budget goes to the military. Fifty-four dollars out of every hundred goes to some form in the military budget. Whew, imagine if some of that money uh, instead went to pay those same companies: Raytheon, General Dynamics, 
to instead of making missiles and tanks, to to make equipment that cleans up the plastic that's in the oceans, that that, that, that mines all the all the oil that's leaked around the world and pipelines and so on and so forth. Uh, and and engineers that I know work for those companies would be much happier designing systems that do that. They're, as long as they're paid to build missiles and tanks, they do it. But if but they'd be happier to be paid to do things that will make the world a better place for their children and grandchildren, most of them. Yeah. And when you're talking about these technologies, too, are you also talking about like advancement in artificial intelligence and how this is going to challenge the minds of maybe great inventors and other people to come up with these solutions? Yes, absolutely. And I, 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 I live on an island off the coast of Seattle. And Seattle's kind of a hotbed of you know new technology. A lot of the big tech companies are located here. And I have a lot of friends that are in that business and, and my neighbors, and, and they've been to the Amazon with me, some brilliant minds in that field and really, really exploring how, if you, if you think about it, uh, uh, artificial intelligence it doesn't have the emotions that, that we humans have. It, it doesn't deal with political issues unless, unless it's designed to. And so the important thing is how do you design it so that it'll be objective? So if we can really design artificial intelligence in a way that will be objective, where we can actually look at it as the next evolution, perhaps, in human, human involvement, uh, but to be objective. Now, and be good. a lot of your listeners are going to say, ah, yeah, but it's going to be taken over by, and there'll be all kinds of conspiracy theories around that, which absolutely could happen. I'm not denying that that could happen. But these, so, so these people that I know are working on how do we make sure using blockchain and, and, other, thing, and other methods that, that keep things transparent and honest, how do we help that technology be objective? So it could be almost like a, you know, like an extraterrestrial looking down on us, but it's it's actually our own AI that says, hey, you can't go on like this any longer. You can't continue to pollute your, your waters and your air and your land and your minds. You can't c c continue to colonize the world and your own minds. Uh, you've got to understand that what you're doing is, is extremely destructive ultimately and then comes up with suggested ways to, to change that. Uh, so I think there's, 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 there can be a lot of hope there of, 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 a, of, of some sort of a mind that we create as part of us that is not judgmental, is not politically motivated, that is truly motivated to, to analyze the situation and suggest solutions to the problems that we currently face. And again, I say that with a caveat of understanding that it is possible that, that you know, other people who don't have those motivations could direct that, conceivably correct that, uh, direct that intelligence toward nefarious ways. Uh, that's the challenge, is, is how do we make sure that that doesn't happen? Yeah, so let me ask you another question, and it's going to be a little hard for me to put it into words, and I'll do my best. And maybe this is more from, um, I'm asking from the, the shaman perspective of this. So you gave the example how you're supposed to do this book tour and you ended up doing it virtually. And uh, same thing with Path 11. We were supposed to be filming um, a conference in Chicago this year and we figured out a way to do it online and we did that. Um, but the key element missing is clearly the human connection, right? Being there, like even though we can do this and this is wonderful, it would feel totally different if we were sitting in the same room with each other. 
But then I kind of stop myself and I go into the whole thought about how, you know, maybe in some of the theories, maybe this is truly just an avatar. And I think about consciousness and I know that energy doesn't die and we are pure consciousness. And so I'm kind of also grappling with, you know, is some of this virtual reality stuff and the way that we are connecting kind of taking away a little bit of the in-person connection, yet does it evolve us to understand consciousness better? That the physical body, the human body is just kind of this vehicle that we use here on earth, but it does feel like that there's an element that's being taken away due to the pandemic of what a lot of people are longing for, yearning for is to hug people again and to, you know, I would love to sit in a room with you instead of look at you over a computer. But we're consciousness and we don't need the physical body. You know, I mean, so many things in the way that we communicate and non-verbally and telepathically that maybe this can help us to understand that concept a little bit more. Like many of the shamans that I talked to would say, you know, you have to, this is all a dream. You're waking up inside of the dream. You dream your dream. Yeah. And, and sometimes I think I get a little attached to the physical, you know, the physical aspect of being in this vehicle, but what are your thoughts about that? Do you think that this allows us to evolve a little bit more to understand consciousness outside of the body? Yes, I think you expressed it very eloquently there. It, it, I think it is a vehicle. It seems to me that the universe is conspiring. The earth is conspiring. Pachamama is conspiring to teach us that we can and must change. Uh, so as I travel around speaking at conferences in many places, and I was recently speaking at a conference in St. Petersburg, Russia, 12,000 pretty high-level executives and world leaders were there. Putin was there, and and Guterres, Secretary General of the United Nations, and many others, and the president of, of all the big banks and, and big companies. And, and you know, I, I was very struck by how many of those people during receptions would come up to me and say, you know, I, I I run a big company and 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 I want it to be greener, but but I'm afraid I'll lose my job if I go too far. So so get out there, get on social networking and and, and, and convince people to to send letters to me to, to to turn these things around. And we can do that today because of the technologies we have in a way that we couldn't do it before. Um, and so I I do think that this is opening us up to an understanding that we can communicate with people without being in physical contact. And hopefully we'll have the opportunity to go back into physical contact too, but but maybe we won't need to do it nearly as much. Uh, I'm reminded of a, of a time a number of years ago, again, a shaman, this was again in the Andes of, of Ecuador, and uh, this was a male shaman, and, and he said, you know, we shamans are connected all over the world by like a spider's web. He said, if I here in Ecuador as a shaman, I, I tug on this web, a shaman in, in Africa, another shaman in, in Asia, they can, they can feel me tugging on this web. They know that. And then he looked at me and he said, I think within your lifetime, John, uh, that web is going to be expressed in a more physical way that everybody will be able to tune into. Uh, here we are. That, that was that was before the internet, and and we're, we're tied into that web right now. I don't know how many people from how many different countries are listening to us right now, April. But I suspect, <laughs> yeah, I suspect, and that's you know that's that's phenomenal that we can do this. And people, you and I would never have been in touch with before. Now we can do it, 
And, you know, yes, I, I, I terribly miss, you know, my grandson doesn't live too far from me. He's just about to turn 13, you know. He comes comes over. We, we go to play soccer or something. He wants to hide. And he says, oh, my gosh, I, I forgot. I can't, I can't hide. And it's particularly you know, the kids their age, that they're, they're a little less cautious. But he's very aware that at my age, he has to be really careful with me, you know. And it's, it's, it's so frustrating and, and, and sad. And so hopefully we'll get back to the time where we, where we can do that. But, but hopefully we'll also have learned that we've got this whole new area that we can go into, which is energy. As you said, you know, Einstein said matter and energy never disappear. They just shapeshift. And, and we're immortal. We're all immortal. And, and our souls are, and our energy is always there. It's never going to dissipate. Our bodies will dissolve, but our, our energy and our, our souls will, will continue. It's very shamanic. It's very indigenous, but um, but but we and, and so we. I think we're getting a glimpse of that now by by being able to do this by being in touch the way you and I and all the other people out there listening and, and seeing us are, are 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 in touch with us right now. It's a it, it, this is a it's a monumental experience that we're sharing today. This COVID nineteen is huge. It's bigger. I think that any of us possibly can imagine in terms of how it's going to impact, how it is impacting and will continue to impact human evolution and consciousness evolution. I'm, uh, yeah, and we, we may not even truly understand the depths of it in our lifetime of really what's happening, what's beginning, what's transforming. Um, and I wanted to just go back in your book, too, because, you know, towards the end, when you have resources, like what can you do? You know, sometimes some of these bigger concepts, I don't know about anybody else, but it can almost feel a little bit overwhelming and you kind of feel so small in the grand picture of things. And then what is it that I can really do? How can I make a difference? You know, and you said it today. I took I took that point away from your TED talk, too, where it's like, don't think that, you know, a tweet or an email to some of these larger corporations doesn't make a difference. You said they're watching. They are listening. They are getting those, um, you know, so that is something that you can do. But um, what I thought was really interesting, and back in your book, it says resources, what can you do? And you kind of go through and you ask um, people to ask themselves the big questions, which was also, I think, in chapter 13, when you guys were going through the ceremony with, uh, I think it was Lady Lynn. And like some of the bigger questions for us to be able to answer on an individual level is like, who, who and what am I? What are my jaguars, my fears? How do I confront my Jaguars and alter my perceptions? What actions do I take for me personally? And how do I change the world? And there was um, the example of the daily practice. And one of the questions, I didn't, I had a, I have a bunch of stuff highlighted here, I'm not sure, but it was about like asking yourself why you were born into this period of time, right? It was like, we were born and all of us who are here experiencing this, that that is a pretty, that's a pretty significant thing to reflect on. Um, so I was wondering if you wanted to talk a little bit um, more about that. Um, yeah, I'd like to, April. I, yeah, because that was really striking to me. I was like, whoa, I've, <laughs> let me think about that for a second. Like, okay, yeah, I was born into this, this time and it's making great history. So yes, please elaborate more. Yeah, well, it's a very indigenous concept that, that uh, you know, I, I, so I, after the shaman saved my life by teaching me about changing perceptions and so forth in the Amazon back in 1969, since then I studied with shamans in all over the world, Indonesia, 
Iran, Egypt, all over the Americas. Um, and and so many of them will, will tell us that um, we are born at a specific time in history into a, the specific situation that each one of us was born into because we have a mission in life. We all have a mission. And, and our own culture, April, the one I was raised in, and I suspect the one you were raised in, doesn't really emphasize that very much. You know, we, we, we had to go out and find it. But the schools don't tell us we got missions. They tell us we got goals, you know, get good grades, <laughs> go to a good college, get a good job, so on and so forth. Those are goals. But the idea of a mission, and so it, it, it's like, so each one of us can ask ourselves, why was I born now at this amazing, amazing time in history? That, and I'm not you know, in any way diminishing the, the terrible suffering that a lot of people are going through, the deaths and the, the pain and suffering, but it is an incredible time of, the, of being shaken awake. You know, the Pachamama is truly, truly beginning to, to, to shudder now. Why were you born at this time? And why were you born into the situation you were born into, the family you were born into, or however you were raised? Why did you go through what you went through? Why did I serve as an economic hitman doing some pretty bad things around the world? Why did that happen to me after I'd already studied with shamans? And how do I put all this together to now move forward with what I, what I most want to do in life? So these are very important questions. And I, I love that you brought up. So, yeah, you know, the book is a narrative nonfiction. I write it as stories, true stories that I think are fun to read. I hope they're fun to read because, you know, I don't write diatribes on economics. I write about economics, but I do it as a personal thing because I don't think people want to read stories. But in the end, there's this daily practice that can take uh, less than 10 minutes. And you don't do it every day. You can do it once a week. But that we do regularly, and it's based on those questions that, that you asked, and could, maybe I should just run through those a little bit, give an example. Yeah, I would, I would love that, yep. Okay, so, and, and everybody can do this. So, so, so this is based on the idea that we can all participate by convincing corporate executives to change their ways, writing emails, starting consumer uh, movements through social networking. And I want to say that even the sociopaths, and we know there's a lot of sociopaths running corporations out there, but they're not driven by profit. They're driven by success. And if we redefine success from that perception of making a better long-term future, they will be the people who will fight hardest to make that happen. If that's the people we put as Time Magazine's Person of the Year or on the cover of Fortune Magazine, it's the, it's, it's the executives that are moving toward a life economy, then the sociopaths will buy into it big time. There's a little diversion here, but I, I can just hear people asking the question. You talk about CEOs, but what about the sociopaths out there? Yeah, they're there, but yeah. we can bring them around too. <laughs> yeah, and there's Psychology 101 for you, right? <laughs> Exactly. And I, I know some of those sociopaths, uh, believe me. Mm -hmm. So the five questions, and I'll give some examples of how that works. Question number one, what is it I most want to do for the rest of my life? What will bring me the greatest satisfaction? What will bring me the greatest bliss? And for me, I'd answer, I want to write. I love to write. I love to write. I just love to write. And I've got a friend who's kind of at the opposite end of the spectrum. He's a carpenter. He wants to work with his hands and wood. And so that's, but every one of us asks that question, what do you most want to do for the rest of your life, beginning right now, tomorrow, beginning now? Second question, uh, how does that relate to helping others? Because we're all happier if we help other people. Could be one other person or it could be the whole world. 
And for me as a writer, I would say, well, I want to write books that tell stories and inspire people to change their lives, to make their lives better and to make a better world. That's what I want to do. My carpenter friend would say, well, I want to use sustainable materials. And the third question then is, what's holding you back? What are the barriers? What are the jaguars that are holding you back from doing that? What's keeping you? So as a writer, I might say, I just don't have enough time to write every day. I know as a writer, I got to write every day, but I don't have enough time to write every day. My carpenter friend might say, well, my clients are not willing to pay more money for sustainable materials. And so the fourth question is, when you touch that jaguar, when you don't run from it, when you go out and touch it, uh, what's the message that it gives you that changes your perceptions? And so for the writer, I would say, oh, well, the jaguar tells me I could get up half an hour earlier every morning, or I could watch an hour less of television every night and write. Uh, maybe three nights a week, but I can do it. I can discipline myself. That I can I can create time. And my carpenter friend, the Jaguar, says, hey, tell your clients that the added price is not a cost. It's an investment. They're investing in the future of themselves, for their children, and for their grandchildren by using sustainable materials. It's an investment. And so the fifth question, that is, what actions do I take every day? So as a writer... I write. I have to write every day or, you know, almost every day. And the, my carpenter friend, he starts, he builds with sustainable materials, but he also promotes them. And he doesn't have to be an eloquent poet or write a book about it. But, you know, he, he finishes building a cabinet over there, or a house over here. And he, he tells the children, uh, you know, look, your, your parents invested in this the cabinet is made out of all sustainable materials. But your house is made out of sustainable materials. Your parents have invested in your future just as if they were paying for your education. Or, or something else that's, that they see as an investment. And so, you know, if every one of us answers these five questions, and we do it on a fairly regular basis, daily or, or whatever, fairly regularly, we reach a higher consciousness about ourselves and who we are on this planet and what brings us satisfaction. And those last three questions, uh, what are the jaguars I face? Uh, what happens when I touch the Jaguars? How does it change my perception? What actions do I take? Those will change frequently. So as a writer, I might say, oh, yeah, so now I've got an hour. I've, I've, I've cut out an hour of television every night. I can write for an hour. And then the next question is, hmm, what am I going to write about? <laughs> got to touch that Jaguar. And then I say, oh, I'm going to write about global economics. Ah, well, wait, do I really have the credibility? Do I have the knowledge to write about global economics? And then when I touch the Jaguar, it says, well, write about stories that relate to the global economics, like what you, you know, the stories about your life as, as an economist and, and, and with indigenous people. And so we go on and on. And for each of us, every day, those or frequently, those three last questions will change. But every time they change, we rise to a higher level of consciousness about ourselves and who we are on this planet and a higher level of satisfaction about our lives. And, and the book describes a little daily practice that makes it easy to do that, to, to, to deal with that every, every day. And I think that... They work for everybody. It doesn't matter whether you're a carpenter or a plumber or a teacher or a priest or a, 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 a host of a big show like this or, or whatever you are, um, a parent. We can all answer those questions, and they will move us forward into into making into the, the subtitle of the book. You know, t transforming fear into action to change your life in the world. Yeah. And, and I really love the daily practice. What came up for me when I was thinking about, okay, when I start to touch my Jaguar, what's coming up? 
uh, one of the things that I realize in this daily practice is sometimes behind the fear, we can make excuses as to, well, I really don't have time, right? Or where am I going to find the time? Or where am I going to find the money? Or there's no way I could afford, you know, the, the better resources. I just can't do it, John. You know, I, I make this amount of money and I, I can't get that, you know, that type of deck that I want. But, you know, I, I feel like when you talk about touching that Jaguar, there there is always a way. I feel like that there's always something that we can challenge within ourselves to say, that's just not a good enough excuse not to wake up 30 minutes beforehand. If you really want it, and like you said, you really want to elevate your consciousness or be that happier person. Because ultimately, like that big question, you know, what is your purpose? What is it that you want to do in life that will make you the happiest? Many people aren't doing that. They'll say, well, I wish I could. If fear and money wasn't an issue, I would be doing this. But like you said, it's taking those steps each step you take then diminishes that fear and the fear of the Jaguar. Um, And then you can kind of like see the beauty of it. So I also see it as like on a practical level too, of really beginning to challenge yourself to eliminate the excuses that are attached to the fear that's holding you back and stopping you. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, and this coronavirus is a wonderful example in a way that, you know, I, I sometimes talk to people and, they say, you know, well, I guess I can't self-isolate for another day. Forget about another month or two months or however long it's going to be. And I'll say, well, wait a minute. D- didn't you tell me earlier that you wanted to learn how to play the flute? And you've got a flute and the, the, you can go on the Internet and learn how to play it. This is a great opportunity to stay home and play your flute. Or didn't you always tell me you wanted to start writing a book or reading more books or talking to your 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 family that lives overseas or, 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 or there's so many things that we're, we're given that opportunity. If we, if we just look at what the Jaguar is really telling us, you know, so, yeah. And, and, and I think we can take this to a big level. Um, if we consider that we're going through a consciousness revolution around the world, I truly believe this, that, that there is this conscious revolution and it's, it's, it is reflected in B corporations. The things we've talked about, that there, people are waking up to the fact we live on this fragile space station. Whenever there's a revolution, there's a, there's a pushback. The status quo doesn't want the revolution to happen. That's always been true throughout history. But if the revolutionaries, or if we want to think of ourselves more as agents of change than actual revolutionaries, but if, if we take energy from that, we say, look, those people who are telling us that we can't change, that we've got to go back to the old normal, uh, they're, they're scared. And they're scared because they know that we're winning and they know that we can't go back to normal. We've got to create a new normal uh, if we take energy from that, kind of like a martial artist. You know, it's hot. You know, if you're up against someone who's a lot bigger and stronger than you, don't don't try to outpower them. Use their energy uh, to, to your advantage. And uh, I, I think we're very, very much at a time like that now. And our consciousness is rising. And, you know, this, 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 there's been a huge shadow side of humanity, and especially the United States, I think, that's been shown by this virus. And what's a shadow? Well, a shadow is created when a light shines on a solid object. In this case, a solid object is a death economy. And the light shining on it has created this big shadow out here. And, and so how do you get rid of a shadow? Well, you raise the light, and as you raise the light, the shadow diminishes, you know, it diminishes and it starts to go away. It goes away eventually. Well, this is raising consciousness. And as we're raising consciousness, the shadow of what we've created as human beings and this death economy and the system that just is no longer working 
that shadow is diminishing. But we're, but you have to see the shadow first <laughs> to know how to raise the light. And it's become very obvious. This is such a very special time, April. I think we're all ought to feel blessed that we're alive now at this time that's been prophesized by so many cultures and, and we're in it and we're all part of it. Yeah, I agree, John. And, and I think too, you know, what you just said, uh, giving the martial artist um, example too, for people is to not maybe fight against what is happening and to release the resistance. How do you make this work for you? You know, and how do you work with it? How do you lean into it and not look at this as such a horrible time, but really like you said in the very beginning to change the perception, change the perception, you change your reality. Yes. Yeah. And that's what, that's all it takes really. And, and it's so easy when you think about it, all we got to do is change our perception as individuals of what we want to do and what's getting in our way and how we change our perceptions to move us forward. And as a, as a, as a species, how do we change the perception of what it means to be human on this planet? It's pretty easy to change perceptions. Then, of course, we got to take actions. You got to actually do it. You know, so my perception is I want to be a writer and I, I create the time to write. Then I've actually also got to be disciplined enough to sit down and write. And sometimes the, 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 I've got to overcome a barrier there, too. Like, oh my gosh, I got a headache this morning. I don't feel like writing. But maybe if I do a little writing, it'll help me get rid of my headache. Right. Wonderful. Well, John, thank you so much for coming on the Path Loving Podcast. I'm so glad that I finally learned about you and your work. And, um, you know, can for listeners who are just being introduced to you for the first time, where can they find more information about you, your website, your books, um, all of that stuff? Yeah, uh, uh, my website is johnperkins.org. I'm an I'm organic. I'm not a, I'm not a conference. <laughs> and the, the book, you know, uh, this, this book has basically so much from all the other nine books I wrote before it in it. Um, but you can get it through the website and at the website, you can order it from your local bookstore. You can also join a, a great little private Facebook group where we've now got uh, quite a few people on there. And, and, they, and we have guests. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had uh, three shamans from Guatemala. Uh, Mayan shamans. Oops. <laughs> she knows the. She knows it's time to go. Right? She's saying goodbye to me. <laughs> oh, I think we might have lost your sound. I think the kitty cat muted you. Oh, sorry. She did. There we go. That's okay. <laughs> I had to touch that tag. Uh, yeah. So johnperkins.org. And we've got a great little Facebook group that's now got uh, quite a few people on it. And every couple of weeks, we do a special program. Uh, uh, we recently had three shamans from Central America, Mayan shamans, who did a fire ceremony. And if you missed it, you can still get it on video. So johnperkins.org. I think it's on the screen right now. So, yeah. And I'd love to have people. I'm planning on going back to Central America to the Mayan shamans in January. I think that trip's going to happen. We postponed two others this year to two other indigenous groups, but we'll be resuming them, I'm sure. Love to have some of your people join us, April. I'd love to have you join us, please. I know <laughs> one of these trips. It's so much fun and so so inspirational and informative, and it's this exchange between us and the indigenous shamans that are very very authentic. People I've known and worked with, many of them since the late '60s, the '70s, the '80s, for a long long time. 
I would love to. I would love to join. And I think if there's anything that COVID, you know, taught me is just to continue to keep living life to the fullest and do more travel. You know, I've thought a lot about travel. I've never been out there to the Amazon. Um, I've, you know, the more people that I have uh, had the opportunity to interview for the Path 11 podcast, I was like, okay, I'm ready to maybe try ayahuasca. (laughs) I'm maybe ready to go and do some of this deep, you know, work. So uh, that kind of settling me is charging me. Like once you say go, I'm going for it. So yes, I would love to. So I'll, I'll be following your work from here on out. Great. Thank you. And thank you so much for all you do. Your program is wonderful. You're doing great work. You're, you're, you're changing consciousness and that's so helping people to change their consciousness. And that's so important. And I so appreciate what you're doing. Thank you for, yes. Thank you too. Thank you so much. We'll have a have a great day and uh, give that kitty cat some more hugs and kisses for me. <laughs> she's she's a beauty. Yeah, she's, she's dying to play now. She she said, "All right, enough of the seriousness. It's time to play." <laughs> That's right. All right. Well, I'll let you and your little girl get back to playing. <laughs> All right. Take Thank care. You. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Thanks again, everyone, for listening to this week's show. Before you go, I just wanted to remind you to listen to our new podcast, Mindbenders. Visit mindbenderspodcast.com to hear my dad's synchronistic story, I Hope It'll Bend Your Mind, about Jimi Hendrix. Then submit your story if you think it can bend our minds. Also be sure to check out the video replays of the 2020 Virtual Afterlife Conference. We have over 17 hours of amazing presenters exploring the survival of consciousness after death, working with hospice professionals, physicians, mediums, clergy, counselors, and alternative healers to offer a deeper understanding of death and beyond.